Pope Francis is in Canada this week apologizing for the church's role in indigenous schools. How is his message being received and was it necessary? Commentator and priest of the Archdiocese of Kingston, Ontario, Father Raymond D'Souza offers analysis. And the Archdiocese of Washington bans the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass in all parish churches. But why? Liturgical expert Peter Kwasniewski and professor of theology at Catholic University Chad Pecknold weigh in. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's scheduled visit to Taiwan is being met by blowback from communist China. Could there be a military confrontation? President of the Population Research Institute, Stephen Mosher, shares his perspective and his new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. The World Over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get right to it. Pope Francis is visiting Canada this week. He's apologizing to indigenous communities for the church's role in running residential boarding schools. Is the Pope's message inspiring reconciliation or is it causing more pain? Here with his perspective and to shed light on the residential school's controversy is media commentator and priest of the Archdiocese of Kingston, Ontario, Father Raymond D'Souza. On Monday, Father, uh, Pope Francis issued an historic apology for the Church's cooperation with Canada's policy of indigenous re residential schools. He said, quote, I am deeply sorry. I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against indigenous peoples. And then he went on to say, although Christian charity was not absent and there were many outstanding instances of devotion and care for children, the overall effect of the policies linked to the residential schools were catastrophic. What our Christian faith tells us is that this is a disastrous error incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father Raymond, you've been in Ottawa covering the Pope's visit uh, to Canada for EWTN. How is the Pope's apology being received by the survivors as well as the wider Catholic community in Canada? Well, there are some distinctions to be made. It's being very well received by the people who went to the schools and the families and actually by local indigenous communities who generally have good relations with the Catholic Church. Uh, but indigenous peoples are like other peoples. They don't all agree on everything. And there is a political leadership in the country that has a a vested interest in sort of preserving uh, sources of tension. And some of those voices have expressed uh, a lack of uh, receptivity to the apology. But in general, it's gone over very well. Okay. Uh, and with the church in, uh, in general gone well, this has been an issue for almost 30 years that Canada's been dealing with. So it's not a new thing here, although it might be new for people uh, looking in from abroad. And it's been a warmly welcomed gesture of the Holy Father to come to Canada and do okay. this, yes. Father, obviously the abuse at these schools, the physical, the sexual abuse is despicable, it's wicked and condemnatory. But what else was happening here 
that demanded an apology. I mean, this was uh, the, the, uh, a government policy. They recruited the church to run some of these schools, not all of them. Uh, well, the, the key issue really was that the children were taken from their families, separated sometimes for many years at a time. So it violated the principles, Catholic social teaching principles of the primacy in parents and education. It broke down family uh, connections, generational connections. And it, it didn't really try to evangelize the indigenous culture as so much as to kill it. There's the famous phrase, uh, kill the Indian mm -hmm. in the child. So that's all widely accepted that that was a mistaken policy. You're correct. And Pope Francis has insisted uh, on two occasions that this was a government policy. Uh, but who's yeah. going to run, who's going to go out to these remote areas except for the Christian missionaries who were... Uh, in Canada, mostly Catholic, but not entirely Catholic. So uh, in, in principle, the policy is now recognized as being, as Pope Francis said, incompatible with the gospel. And then, of course, in the places where there were abuses, that exacerbated the, the, the flaw in principle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After his apology, the Pope received a headdress at uh, this major event uh, expressing his sorrow over what happened here. And he accepted that headdress as a sign of being a member of the tribe. Uh, a woman in indigenous dress sang the national anthem. Your reaction to all of this? Uh, and, and is the visit itself, Father, as some are contending, a validation of the charges that the Catholic Church was responsible for a genocide here? There are a lot of competing voices on it. The Pope has been very careful here. Uh, one of the things he's done, which is quite admirable, is that the statement you quoted there, for example, about that the Christian charity was not absent. He praised the mm -hmm. work of missionaries who uh, preserved indigenous languages. Uh, in Canada, for the last few years, no one has said that. That's been considered sort of a little bit... Uh, impolitic. So there's been some courage there, and hopefully a more balanced mm -hmm. discussion will uh, follow uh, from that. Uh, it's a very fraught issue. What, it, what this reminds me of a bit, Raymond, is uh, back in 2002, right after the Boston sexual abuse scandal, John Paul uh -huh. invited the cardinals to Rome, American cardinals, and he said, when things are difficult, the, uh, the house of Peter is always open to you. This has been a 30-year process in Canada. There was some time when it was thought to be resolved. Last year, it became a very internationally fraught issue. The Pope received Indigenous leaders back in April. It was that same thing. The House of Peter is open to you when you're in, when you're in difficulty. Uh, and they wanted to come here. I don't think it was absolutely essential that he come here in the sense of saying what needed to be said because apologies had been given before. Uh, but certainly the fact that he did come here is an act of humility and pastoral care, and I think it will advance reconciliation amongst those who want reconciliation, which is the majority, but there are some, some voices who don't want it. And, of course, for them, this visit is sort of a step backwards because they want to keep the frictions open, but that's not the majority, Raymond. Mm -hmm. well, so, look, the Pope has billed this as a week-long penitential pilgrimage. Do you think that went too far and this should have been part of a wider trip to Canada and maybe to the United States? I think if the Pope had been more physically strong, like two or three years ago, four years ago, that's what would have happened. It would have been two days mm -hmm. or three days. 
Uh, they've, done, they've come here, they did two days. The really critical few days were at Edmonton earlier this week. We have our own uh, political situation in Canada. If you go to the English part of the right. country, the French part of the country doesn't want to be left out. So they added days in Quebec. Five days on one team is difficult to sustain. I'm sure our viewers at EWTN yeah. have... Uh, tired of me tired of me <laughs> saying the same things I think probably um, so yes if if uh, if the Pope had been up to a few years ago going on another country coming here for two or three days that would have been probably better but he's come here yeah. and he only does two events a day and it's understandable but you've got there I think after the fact uh, those who had proposed a shorter visit uh, originally would probably say that would have been better but but you know yeah. in a sense uh, a man who comes and spends more time than is required, uh, that shows his goodwill, which has been very evident this week. Mm. Last summer, at least four Catholic churches were burned to the ground on indigenous land in Canada. Approximately 70, 70 churches have been vandalized, burned, or desecrated since this residential school controversy began last year, or, or erupted again last year. Uh, some of these indigenous groups, Father, they claim that colonialism and the Catholic doctrine of, quote, discovery are at the heart of the controversy. Your reaction to that? And why has there been virtually no coverage of this violence in the media and no outcry from the government of Canada? Well, to the, to the point about the desecrations, my own home parish, where my parents go in Calgary, was one of those that was, uh, had graffiti. Uh, uh, that was a that was a, uh, a shameful moment. Uh, some indigenous Catholics had their own churches burned down, and you're correct. The the lack of outrage, especially amongst government officials in Canada, was telling that um, uh, they didn't really take it seriously that this was an offense against the religious sensibilities of Catholics, including indigenous Catholics. So uh, that was regrettable last year. The reaction to that. The whole question of colonialism and the doctrine of discovery that uh, that appeared at the mass in St. Anne de Beaupre, there was a protest mm -hmm. banner at the mass, which was rude to say the least. Uh, but um, that's a complicated historical question. Look, the doctrine of discovery, to whatever extent it uh, uh, compromised the dignity of uh, Aboriginal peoples in the New World, was repudiated in 1537. So people who bring that up, I think, are looking for reasons to have conflict. Uh, it's a worthy historical subject, but it, you know, 1537 is a long time ago, and when Pope John Paul came to Canada in 87, he mentioned that. So there's that issue. And then there's a broader issue about, uh, that invites Catholics to also an examination of consciences. To what extent do we cooperate with the state in evangelization? And this mm. residential schools issue is an example of when the churches cooperated with the state in this particular policy, it was, as the Pope said, disastrous. And sometimes when the state offers a quote-unquote helping hand uh, to religion and to evangelization, it's in the long term not a helping hand. So there's something there to mm. remind us that although a lot of missionary work around the world was done with the help of the Spanish crown, Portuguese crown, French crown, mm -hmm. etc., uh, cooperation with the state always involves a potential danger for the church, and in this case it was an actual danger for the gospel, and especially for the spread of the gospel amongst indigenous peoples, many of whom uh, found their residential school experience an obstacle to their faith. Yeah. Uh, Father, before I let you go, has there be, been any discussion 
of these acts of terrorism and destruction of churches while the Pope's been in Canada from either the Vatican or uh, uh, Canadian officials? I mean, the church there was pretty uh, closed during this COVID lockdown as well. And I, I haven't heard very much about that either. I mean, we're talking about, you know, misusing the faith against others uh, in, you know, aboriginal people. What about the, 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 the absence of faith, the closing of the church doors to so many faithful Catholics over the last couple of years? One of the one of the challenges of a singular theme papal visit, which is highly unusual, as you know, Raymond, you've covered many of yeah. them. It's it's very unusual, maybe unprecedented to have a single theme visit, is that things that don't mesh with that theme kind of get left out. So, for example, uh, as you mentioned, the violence against the churches last year has not been mentioned. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is the Holy Father, first Jesuit pope. Uh, has not mentioned, nor has it been even acknowledged, the Jesuit martyrs. He's going to meet with Jesuits during the trip privately, so that might come up there. So now, obviously, he's not ashamed of the Jesuit martyrs, uh, but things that were thought, you know, not to sort of fit with the dominant theme have been left out, and that's probably a reason not to have a single theme to visit. Uh, but there, was, there yeah. were unusual circumstances for this one. But I'm sure that in future, uh, you're not going to have a single theme visit because, as you point out, it means other things get uh, neglected. Well, most importantly, I hope they don't have a single theme visit so Father D'Souza has something else to talk about, which we, we, he's been lacking <laughs> in material this week. So, Father Raymond D'Souza, thank you as always for your perspective. We'll talk and check in with you soon. Very good. Thank you, Raymond. As I promised you weeks ago, I am very excited to reveal the cover of my forthcoming picture book for the entire family, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. Nearly everything you know about The Wise Men is probably in error. Based on new historical and biblical research, I present an accurate retelling of the Magi's journey, which is far more adventurous and fascinating than we've been led to believe. The Wise Men Who Found Christmas is now available for pre-order at the EWTN catalog, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, BAM, and at your local bookstore. It's already an Amazon number one Christmas new release. For more information, Go to RaymondArroyo.com, and I'm going on a tour this fall, longer than the wise men's. This is going to take me all over the country. Can't wait to see you all on the road, and we'll rediscover the wonder of the nativity like the wise men who found Christmas. Last week, the Archdiocese of Washington announced that the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass in parishes throughout the Archdiocese will no longer be permitted. In a decree published Friday, Cardinal Wilton Gregory mandated that beginning September 21st, Sunday Mass can only be said using the old rite at three non-parish churches. Priests who want to celebrate the Latin Mass have to request permission in writing and affirm the validity of the revisions implemented during the Second Vatican Council. Also, among the provisions of the seven-page document is Cardinal Gregory's requirement that the clergy of Washington ask his permission in order to say the ordinary form of the liturgy, ad orientum, facing east or away from the people. Here to discuss all of this and more is associate professor of theology at the Catholic University of America, Chad Pecknold, and senior fellow at the St. Paul Institute for Biblical Theology, Peter Kwasniewski. Thank you both for being here. Chad, the Archdiocese of Chicago made similar changes earlier this year. Are you surprised 
by Cardinal Gregory's decision to ban the traditional Latin Mass, and why now? I mean, I'm so heartbroken, but I'm not surprised. It, it's, um, I think, as you mentioned, both in Chicago and D.C., we had uh, long rumored the most draconian implementation of, of the motu proprio. Uh, I never believed the rumors. I thought, well, it won't be that draconian. But in fact, it was more draconian than I even anticipated, as, as you already suggested. Traditionos Custodes does not actually uh, restrict ad orientum, but of course, in the implementation here, he takes that to be the spirit of the law. Um, it's devastating for so many faithful Catholics in the Archdiocese of, of Washington um, who make lots of sacrifices and are maybe the, the, the most engaged in the sacramental life of the church at a time in which we see sacramental participation uh, declining. So why? Yeah. Why be so draconian in your approach to the implementation of this, uh, of this executive order? Yeah, well, the ban on the, on the uh, old rite or the traditional Latin mass follows a ruling last year, which you mentioned, in which Pope Francis severely limited the use of that old rite. Now, Francis suggested that those who preferred the Latin mass were using it to reinforce ideological divisions within the church. Gregory said, Cardinal Gregory of D.C. said he had not found that to be the case in D.C., writing, quote, I've discovered that the majority of the faithful who participate in these liturgical celebrations in the Archdiocese of Washington mm -hmm. are sincere, faith-filled, and well-meaning. Likewise, the majority of priests who celebrate these liturgies are doing their very best to respond pastorally to the needs of the faithful. Peter, if this is the case, why ban a couple of, of these traditional Latin masses, particularly in a place like Old St. Mary's, where I used to go to church, and it, it was instrumental in my wife's conversion. I, and I'll talk to you in, in a moment about I know you were associated with that parish at one time as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, again, I think that um, it's significant that Cardinal Gregory has a degree in liturgy. He is somebody who is fully committed to not just the liturgical reform in a, gen in a generic way, um, because I think all of us might say, well, we're interested in liturgical renewal and we want everybody to participate deeply in the liturgy and so on, all mm -hmm. the ideals that you find in Vatican II. But he's committed specifically to the way in which the implementation took place in the 60s and 70s, um, all the way down to the present. So I think that he's fundamentally unsympathetic with Catholics even who find the old rite uh, spiritually nourishing and fulfilling and, uh, and, and, dyna and, and um, dynamic for their, their, li their life of faith. It's almost as if mm -hmm. the, the attitude is you either must learn to love and worship with this new rite, it, it doesn't matter what your personal experiences are, uh, or tough luck. Um, you know, we're going to impose uh, a new set of Jim Crow laws, and we're going to force uh, segregation of Catholics into separate but unequal categories. Mm -hmm. mm, wow. No, I, I have to tell you, I was traveling last week, and uh, we, we went to a couple of masses as we were traveling. If there were one version of the Novus Ordo, if there was one version of the Reform Mass, you'd say, okay, well, w w we, we will do this. We'll show up and participate in this. But 
it, it's a cacophony. Not one is nothing like the others in music, in tone, even the the the, the procession in, the procession out. Everything is fungible and movable and improvisatory. Uh, the Latin Mass doesn't have that, which is, I think, the attraction of the young to that. And you, you mentioned a moment ago about people participating in the Mass. The first obligation is to get them to show up. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to become increasingly difficult when you sap the Mass of sacrality, wonder, awe, which the old Mass has because of the form itself. Chad. I was struck by the fact that the Pope embraced all matter, matter of uh, native embellishments around the Mass during his Canadian visit. He even said, and I'm going to quote and get your reaction to this, he said, in the fog of forgetfulness that overshadows our turbulent times, it is essential to cultivate our roots, to pray for and with our forebearers, to dedicate time to remember and guard their legacy. This is how a family tree grows. This is how the future is built, end quote. Yet the traditional mass <laughs> and our forebearers uh, has become something dis disposable, I guess. How does that add up? Well, it doesn't add up, Raymond, and, and we all know it doesn't add up. And the question is, is, is why, why do we have so much incoherence? And I think one explanation is, is uh, in Rome, they're in a hurry. They're in a hurry to send a lot of signals, and uh, they're, they're sending those signals. And the signals are, uh, you know, that anything that is traditional or deemed conservative, whatever that might mean, is to be marginalized and ghettoized. And whatever is progressive or uh, forward-thinking is to be perhaps tolerated, perhaps debatable, even celebrated. And it, I think, is reflective of a curia that is in a hurry to send an ideological message, and this is what I think happens with a really kind of vicious politicization of, of the mass. Mm. In a letter to Cardinal Gregory, Father Vincent de Rosa uh, said his parish, Old St. Mary's in Chinatown, mm -hmm. would struggle to survive if the Latin mass parishioners left and took their donations elsewhere. He wrote, to lose half our population overnight would put our finances at least 130,000 in the red crush our volunteer base and seriously hamper our ability to proclaim Christ here. Uh, Peter, you used to direct the Gregorian chant Scola at uh, Old St. Mary's in D.C. when you were a grad student. How much of a blow is this decision to forbid the old right to this parish and to the community there? And what it's do you think will become of Old St. Mary's? Yeah, it, it's a huge blow. I mean, I love I love St. Mary's. I have very fond memories of singing up in the choir loft there and seeing how crowded it was downstairs and how many families. And I've heard it's only become more and more filled with families uh, since the time I was there. I was there in the mid-90s as a graduate student. Um, no, I mean, from, from what I've been told by my friends, uh, you know, the, the Latin Mass was the mainstay of that parish, as indeed it was of other parishes in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, St. Mary's is not the only one that's going to suffer. St. Francis de Sales mm -hmm. is also going to suffer a great yeah. deal. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually think about a historical parallel. You know, Bishop John Ireland in the 19th century um, treated uh, Eastern Rite Catholics as second-class citizens, mm -hmm. and he persecuted their clergy. I think this is the mm -hmm. what we're seeing today with Supich and Gregory is the worst treatment of Catholics by Catholics since Bishop John Ireland in the 19th century. Absolutely. Mm. It's terrible. Chad, as we approach the Bishop's Synod on Synodality, do you expect that we're going to see other dioceses shutting down the Latin Mass to appear to be in communion with the Holy See? 
I'm afraid so because, uh, I mean, while I'm long-term hopeful, Raymond, because I think the Democratic, the Democratic, the demographic wins are sort of on the side of tradition. I mean, when you look at those mm -hmm. who are most highly invested in going to mass, uh, it's it, if, if even if they're not Latin mass goers, they're they're young people who respect the the grandeur of it and who are maybe anti anti TLMers, but. Um, I think, mm -hmm. look, law is a teacher, and the Pope has promulgated a law that is set on uh, undoing Summorum Pontificum, undoing the sort of regularization of, of the 1962 Missal, uh, and that is going to have a chilling effect. It just is going to have yeah. a chilling effect. And, you know, as my, my friend Chris Reddy at CUA says, you know, this is going to be a severe pruning. But as Jesuits should know, suppressions almost always backfire. And I think this is a suppression that's going to backfire big time and that after a severe pruning, we're going to get a, a great flowering, or that's my hope yeah. and prayer. Well, I mean, I, you know, to use a musical analogy that's probably a little off, uh, just because I prefer jazz, which I do, uh, doesn't mean we should outlaw opera, which I occasionally attend. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about the Mass. Uh, we should be allowed to take in all the flowers of Catholicism, right. including the Old Rite and right. the Eastern Rites and, and the Novus Ordo. Right. Well, what do we I, I don't say know to the, why this yeah. is so controversial. What Go do ahead. we say to the Eastern Catholics? Are the Eastern Catholics, uh, you know, who worship at Orientum, are, are they doing something wrong? Is there some defect? Uh, you know, I think I think we have just massive incoherence that's that uh, has needs to be reconciled, uh, perhaps under a future papacy. Hmm. Last week, the Vatican issued another warning of a, a new schism coming out of the synodal hmm. way in Germany. They wrote, uh, and it was an unsigned critique. The Synodal Way in Germany does not have the power to compel bishops and the faithful to adopt new forms of governance and new orientations of doctrines and morals. It would not be permissible to introduce new official structures or doctrines in dioceses before an agreement had been reached at the level of the Universal Church, which would constitute a violation of ecclesial communion and a threat to the unity of the Church. The Holy See said it seem necessary to clarify this in order to, quote, safeguard the freedom of the people of God and the exercise of Episcopal ministry. Uh, the German Synodal Way is a controversial process. It was initiated by Cardinal Reinhard Marx, and its focus has been revolutionizing the priesthood, the role of women, uh, sexual morality. Most recently, an organizer of the German process said the Synodal Way wanted to change the Church's teaching on homosexuality, and it called for blessings of same-sex unions. Peter. What do you make of the Vatican's warning to the church in Germany? And is it clear enough? And is it timely enough? Yes, I, you know, I'm afraid I have uh, a bit of cynicism over this, this matter for a few reasons. One is that uh, the Vatican has been, has been sending uh, mixed signals of its own for years now. All we have to do, we have such short memories in modern times. All we have to do is go back to the 2014-2015 synods on the family the Extraordinary Synod mm -hmm. followed by the Ordinary Synod, which caused so much furor in the church because it seemed as if uh, as if um, the indissolubility of marriage was being called into question. Mm -hmm. And even the, you know, the heterosexual nature of marriage was being raised as a topic for debate at a synod in the Vatican. Right. And then similarly, uh, Cardinal Hollerich uh, has been appointed as one of the main steerers of the Synod on Synodality, which is coming up next year. 
And he is openly right. and outspokenly a proponent of women's ordination and of, of uh, homosexual recognition in the church of homosexual unions. So uh, you have to ask, is this some kind of elaborate ballet? I mean, are the Germans just going too far, too fast? No, notice this phrase, before an agreement had been reached. I mean, as if the Vatican right. is saying, well, what you're saying is okay if we agreed with it, but you're going too fast on your own. It, it seems to me to be kind of a, a, a competition of pushing the envelope. Who pushes the envelope where and how fast? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it, it feels like a political operation. I mean, as somebody who's covered D.C. for, for years, uh, th this feels like a political. Uh, you, you, you float the balloon in one, one municipality, and then it becomes uh, the talking point for the whole party and soon a national policy. Now, following the statement by the Holy See on Thursday, the presidents of the German Bishops' Conference and that central committee of so-called German Catholics, they said they were stunned by the intervention from the Vatican, saying, quote, in our understanding, a synodal process is something else. This also applies to the way today's communication has been handled, which has been a source of astonishment to us. It's not a good example of communication within the church. If statements are published which are not signed by name, Unfortunately, the Synodal Committee has not been invited to a discussion with Vatican bodies to date. And that was Bishop uh, Georg Batzing uh, of Limburg. Chad, your thoughts on this German pushback. The organizers of the German Synodal Way have been previously warned that they're going in a direction that's not in communion with the Universal Church. Why are they astonished by this reaction from Rome? I mean, I think it's faux astonishment. I, it, the, the, um, the, the drama that's playing out, as Peter rightly said, goes back to Amoris mm -hmm. Laetitia, goes back to the Synod on the Family. I mean, I think it's, I think it's telling that Cardinal Casper has stated his uh, concern about uh, Germany. Uh, it, that's, that's both uh, good. He's no conservative, and he's uh, expressing concern about German schism, but it's also deeply, deeply ironic, since it is actually the arguments yeah. of Cardinal Casper uh, advancing uh, communion for those who are divorced and remarried outside of the sacramental bond to uh, masturbation is okay, gay sex is okay, contraception is okay, female priests are okay. I mean, the whole sort of chain of sexual teaching and power in the church, as the congregation states as its first priority, is sort of predicated on on a thesis that was set forward, as Peter said, in 2014. So I, I do think there's a bit of a pantomime, you know, quality to, to this in which, you know, feigning uh, uh, the, that the real problem is communication. Um, uh, the Vatican's poorly communicated with us in Germany. Um, I am also mm -hmm. cynical of this. <laughs> Yeah. Well, on, uh, I, I want to move on. We could be here all day. Sure. Uh, I, I love Casper complaining about doctrinal slippage. You know, that's like <laughs> Harvey Weinstein complaining about nude scenes in movies. But uh, on Friday, Pope Francis issued a new motu proprio changing the governing law of Opus Dei, that prelature set up by John Paul II. Mm -hmm. The new letter entitled To Guard the Charism transfers Vatican oversight of Opus Dei to the Congregation for Clergy from the Congregation for Bishops. Most significantly, Francis announced that the head of Opus Dei will no longer be a bishop. This change, the Pope said, is intended to strengthen the conviction that, for the protection of the particular gift of the Spirit, a form of governance based on charism more than on hierarchical authority is needed. Monsignor 
Fernando uh, Cadiz, who's the current uh, prelate of Opus Dei, was not ordained a bishop when he took office in 2017, which is out of step with his two predecessors. Um, your reaction here, gents, what does this mean, and what is the message uh, attempting to be sent? I think there's there's certainly more here than meets the eye. I'm still puzzling over this change mm. myself. Um, I, I've, I've had good relationships with Opus Dei members over the years, including some priests who've given me spiritual direction. So I, I, I certainly think well of the good work that they've done and that they're doing. Um, but it, it's hard not to see this as a demotion, as a kind of, um, you know, make sure, Opus Dei, that you stay in your place. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and you've been transferred now from the congregation for bishops to the congregation for clergy, I believe. So they've been, in a sense, demoted. Some people say that's not the case. As I, as I point out, it's, 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 a, it's a curious thing. But I, I just want to mention one comment that my friend Gregory DePippo of New Liturgical Movement made. He said that it seems like sometimes Pope Francis's attitude is, I see someone with some power. That's clericalism, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so if if the if the head of Opus Dei has power, well, then that's a problem. We need to live with that, and that's been a pattern, you know, with the Pope's dealings with all kinds of bishops around the world. Very quickly, lastly, uh, photos of a shirtless priest celebrating Mass in the sea using an inflatable lounge chair went viral this week. The Italian Archdiocese of Milan has called for liturgical decorum and respect. Uh, Father Mattia Bernazzone uh, publicly acknowledged in an interview that his choice to celebrate Mass in swim trunks was, quote, perhaps imprudent, you think, Father? Uh, the online response was titanic, to say the least. Peter, your thoughts on this? Yes, yes. Oh, well, you know, that's that's a classic example of a, of a non-apology apology. apology. Uh, he, he also said, uh -huh. I blame myself for perhaps being a little naive. Uh, but uh, but no, I mean what it what it shows is a, is a is a terrible rash of desacralization um, mm -hmm. that anybody mm -hmm. could even think of getting into swim trunks and doing mass on an inflatable raft. I mean it's it's actually sacrilegious. I mean I, there's no is, there's yeah. no You're reason right. to mince words. Um, and 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 of course he was surrounded by women in bikinis and I mean it was it was an absurdity. It was a complete absurdity and a, and, a, and a sacrilege. Um, so he should be much more severely disciplined than that, at least to send a signal to other people to cut out the hijinks and the tricks. Mm -hmm. yep. but, but, Chad, we're back to the point I made earlier. When there is no standard, anything goes. So it just becomes a contest of innovations. Well, and also it becomes a sort of one-way ratchet where the TLM mm. is banned, suppressed, restricted, however you want to put it. Uh, but we have these little abuses, or rather big sacrilegious abuses, uh, which go on and maybe they get a wrist slap, right? right. But, they, but right. they continue. So, so the ratchet goes mm. one way, continually, uh, in a sense, trying to undo the guardrails, I think, that uh, Pope uh, John Paul II and Pope Benedict put up. Those guardrails are in the process of being dissembled and uh, yeah. the liturgical abuses uh, carry on while proper liturgy gets suppressed and everybody gets the signal, everyone gets the message. Mm. Well, the problem with taking down guardrails is everyone falls off the roadway before long, and that's where 
this seems to be headed. By the way, we should mention there is an, uh, a historic number of Catholics leaving the German church. Mm. I just saw a report on this this year. So these, these conversations have serious consequences, and I fear America could be going the same way as Europe is, is sliding. But we'll continue that conversation another day. Gentlemen, Chad Pecknold, Peter Kwasniewski, thank you both for being here. My pleasure. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's planned visit to Taiwan in August is causing diplomatic tension between the U.S. and Communist China, with the Chinese government suggesting a military response should she go ahead with the visit. What exactly is meant by military response, and should the U.S. allow China's threats to dictate its foreign policy? Joining me to discuss this and much more, president of the Population Research Institute, author of the new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics, Stephen Mosier. Stephen, thanks for being here. Before we get to the book, uh, I have to start with this Pelosi visit to Taiwan. The Guardian has confirmed her trip in August, despite pushback from our own state and defense departments. On Tuesday, a spokesman for China's Ministry of Defense said regarding Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, if Pelosi visits Taiwan, it would seriously violate the One China principle and seriously harm China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and seriously damage the political foundation of the China-U.S. relationship. Beijing urges the U.S. to take practical actions to uphold its commitment to avoid supporting Taiwan's independence and must not arrange for Pelosi to visit the Taiwan region. If the U.S. insists on taking its own course, the Chinese military will never sit idly by, and it will definitely take strong actions to thwart any external forces interference. Stephen, your thoughts on China's response here to this trip? Well, I, I think that the Chinese Communist Party's uh, actions have seriously harmed U.S. relations for a long, long time. Uh, the espionage, the theft of intellectual property, the currency manipulation. Uh, and, and more recently, of course, we have the, uh, the claim that China owns the entire South China Sea. Uh, we have right. aggressive actions towards Japanese ships, including ramming a Japanese naval vessel uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, this is gray zone w warfare. Um, and what that means is that they're pushing the envelope there, trying to see how far they can get us to move back, to give way, to concede control over Taiwan to them without going kinetic. And the thing about a bully is whether it's a schoolyard bully or an international bully like uh, like China, uh, you don't kowtow to the bully because the next time they will simply mm -hmm. demand that you bow lower and concede more. I think uh, since uh, President Trump was elected in 2016, there have been a whole series of senior government officials who have gone to Taiwan. That practice should continue. In fact, I would argue mm -hmm. that we need to extend diplomatic recognition to Taiwan now as an independent country mm -hmm. and not do it in isolation. Do it in conjunction with Japan and Australia and our NATO allies and present a united yeah. front against present a united front against this new uh, Chinese aggression. Because remember what's happening in Tibet right now, what's happening in Xinjiang right now to the Uyghurs, what's happening in Hong Kong right now to the, that once great free city. Uh, this will never end. Uh, it won't end with Taiwan. It will continue after that as China mm. spreads its uh, errors around the world.
Stephen, even Biden is suggesting that Pelosi not go to Taiwan. Uh, now, she would be the highest-ranking U.S. official since Newt Gingrich back in the 90s to visit the island nation. Uh, Pelosi doesn't seem to be backing down, however. Listen. I think that it's important for us to show support uh, for Taiwan. I also think that we have none of us has ever said we're for independence when it comes to Taiwan. That's up to Taiwan to decide. Your reaction, Steve? Well, I, I would be happy if uh, Nancy Pelosi were to go to Taiwan. Uh, in conjunction with several other senior uh, U.S. officials. When, when you talk about harming relations, no nation uh, of the two has harmed relations more than China in releasing a pandemic upon the world. And I have to say, this administration has been absolutely silent in demanding compensation from China, in demanding reparations from China, in demanding accountability from China. And uh, that ought to be the focus of our China policy right now is getting to the bottom of the pandemic and making China pay for the millions of lives lost and the trillions of dollars in economic damage. Uh, Stephen, uh, President Biden spoke with China for two hours earlier today via Zoom. Now, she reiterated his opposition to Taiwanese independence. And in the printout from the Chinese government, and who knows if you can believe that, it says that Biden agreed to uh, this one-China policy. Was anything achieved here today, do you think? Well, the one-child China policy, not the one-child policy, which I often talk about as well, uh, which is China's one-child policy, but the one-China policy didn't specify which China would be in charge. And so the one-China policy originally was vague in that sense. So we've never actually conceded that the Chinese Communist Party should directly rule Taiwan. We've just acknowledged that eventually there may be one China. But in my view, unless the people of Taiwan democratically vote to join the People's Republic of China, uh, which is about as unlikely as, uh, as you can imagine, uh, that should never happen. Hmm. Next month, the CCP will hold its 20th Congress. Now, this is a major gathering. It occurs every five years or so. Uh, at this time, President Xi is expected to take an unprecedented third term on as president. Now, no doubt Taiwan's going to be a focus here now that Hong Kong has been dominated. What do you expect China will decide regarding Taiwan at this Congress, if anything? Well, I think China, uh, the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, will decide that uh, that President Xi Jinping uh, deserves a third term because he's purged and punished all of the people who might stand in the way of that. The last center of resistance was Shanghai. And what did he do to Shanghai? He locked down the 26 million people of Shanghai for several months on the grounds of COVID, uh, showing the people of Shanghai who was actually in charge. So Xi Jinping would like to bring uh, Taiwan back uh, under the control of the party, to be sure. He promised to do it by 2020, uh, Raymond. Uh, that's a couple of years oh. in the rearview mirror right now. And so uh, he's moving forward, I think, on many fronts to build up his military, to try to undermine Taiwan from within. But I have to tell you that, that opinion polls show that nearly 80% of the people of Taiwan, 24 and a half million people strong, would take up arms against an invading force from mainland China. Mm. So 
public opinion in Taiwan is unanimously almost in favor of continuing the present relationship where they are a free country, free and independent for all practical purposes. They have regular democratic elections, a peaceful transfer of power from one party to another. They enjoy human rights uh, and freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, all those freedoms which we too hold dear. Uh, they wow. don't want to lose that to a Communist Party dictatorship. Well, Stephen, I, I hear all of that. I watch that. I listen closely to the uh, silence, as you mentioned a moment ago, from the Biden administration. And I keep thinking Hong Kong had all of those features you just ran down as well. And look where they are today. So uh, w w the United States has to decide what it's willing to do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. And is it going to go the way of Hong Kong? We'll see. A report released on Tuesday by the Republican staff of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee found that for a decade, federal employees, Fed employees rather, were offered contracts with Chinese talent recruitment programs, which often included cash payments and asked to provide information on the U.S. economy, interest rate changes, and policies. In a statement, the committee's ranking Republican Senator Rob Portman of Ohio said this. This investigation makes clear that China's malign efforts at influence and information theft are not limited to science and the technology fields. American economic and monetary policy is also being targeted by the Chinese government. Now, Steve, the report doesn't say whether any sensitive information was compromised, uh, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell strongly disputed the report's findings. He called the characterizations of some employees unfair. Are you surprised at all that China would target the Fed? And how worrisome is this report to you? No, the, the, the Chinese espionage effort in the United States is, is really uh, much like a, a giant vacuum cleaner, just vacuuming up information, data from all sources. And they're willing to, to use drugs, they're willing to use uh, prostitutes, and they're willing to use money to achieve those ends. In fact, we have a, a video of a senior Communist Party official laughing, along with an audience which laughed with him, about how easy it was to corrupt American officials. He said, if you offer one bag of money, and if one bag of money isn't enough, you offer two, and you can go to three. So this sort of corruption uh, is spread by the Communist Party, which is an international uh, terrorist organization, in my view, an organized criminal conspiracy whose first victims, of course, are the Chinese people, but is eager to spread its writ to larger areas of the world. And as I say, they won't stop with Taiwan. Uh, they want yeah. uh, to control wider swaths of the planet, ultimately seeking global control. Well, I want to move on to your book, which touches on all of this. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. And you assert there's mounting evidence that leads to the fact that COVID-19 was released from a lab in Wuhan, China. What role do you believe the Chinese Communist Party had in the release of this virus and why, Steve? Well, here's, here's a very interesting question, which I'm often asked. Uh, did the virus leak from the lab or was it deliberately released? And the answer is both. And how that works is follows, mm -hmm. Raymond. They were working on a bioweapon called the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Mm. And during the course of that research, they had the virus in the test tube ready to go. What they needed was a vaccine to vaccinate their own people because you don't want to release a bioweapon on your own population. And so I believe mm -hmm. the evidence shows that the virus leaked out 
during vaccine trials in Wuhan. In other words, they were using an attenuated vaccine, a weakened version of the real virus, attenuated vaccine. And sometimes when you use that sort of vaccine, you can actually contract the disease itself. So I believe they inadvertently allowed this bioweapon to leak out of the lab and caused a, an epidemic on their own people. Then what did they do? They deliberately grounded the planes in Wuhan from flying to Shanghai and Shandong and Beijing and Guangdong, mm -hmm. but they allowed planes to go to Milan, uh, New York City, Madrid, Spain, other hotspots. Uh, they turned out to be hotspots of the coronavirus. So you see, mm. it leaked from the lab during vaccine trials, but it was deliberately spread around the world as a pandemic in the, in the weeks thereafter. And I say that in part wow. not only because wow. of the evidence about this epidemic, this pandemic, but this is a pattern of behavior on the part right. of the Chinese Communist Party. In 58, well, you write about there this. A, yeah, you write about yeah. this in the book. The, the Asian flu in 57, the Hong Kong flu in 68, SARS in 2003, and on and on. Uh, most recently, COVID-19. Uh, you write that COVID's not the last virus you see coming from China. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because uh, the Communist Party has had an active bioweapons program uh, since taking power in 1950. Uh, sadly, during the uh, Japanese invasion of China, the Japanese actually used bioweapons against the Chinese population, anthrax mostly, bubonic plague partially. And those facilities were taken over uh, by the Communist Party when it took power. But things moved to a new level after 2000 when it became possible to manipulate genomes. And it also became possible to come send your scientists to the United States to labs that were funded by Dr. Anthony Fauci, where they could learn gain-of-function research to make viruses more infectious and lethal, and then take that technology back to China. And then it also became possible, and this is, I think, Dr. Anthony Fauci's original pandemic sin. The original sin of Dr. Fauci was, was promoting this gain-of-function research. And then, once it was banned in the United States in 2017, he took his, his uh, gain-of-function research to labs around the world, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was working on coronaviruses. There's a whole paper trail uh, going back over 10 years of how they were enhancing the infectiousness and lethality of coronaviruses. Uh, there are people like Richard Ebright of EcoHealth Alliance, who is getting funding from Dr. Anthony Fauci's shop, talking about, in November of 2019, of all times, talking about how successful the Wuhan Institute of Virology was in genetically engineering coronaviruses using gain-of-function research and how they were uh, able to, uh, to infect mice uh, humanized mice uh, showing that they could infect human beings. So all of this is on the record. There's no point in denying that it came from the lab. There's no point in denying, as, uh, as Dr. Fauci has, that money was going indirectly from uh, the National Institute of Health through EcoHealth Alliance to the Wuhan lab. There's no point denying that the head of the lab, Dr. Shi Zhangli, was trained in the United States at labs that he funded. So we basically handed over to the Chinese Communist Party's bioweapons expert, experts, the ability to make a bioweapon. And surprise, surprise, that's exactly what they did.
Hmm. In the book, you point out that pandemics not only kill people, they hurt and can potentially destroy economies, destabilize countries. And you go on to write about the liberties lost during the COVID shutdowns. Quote, those who violated the quarantine had the full weight of the law dropped upon them. But the real vitriol was reserved for those who dared to come out and protest the Fauci-inspired lockdowns in places such as New York, California, Virginia, and Michigan. These crowds of normal Americans who simply wanted to get on with their lives were attacked as racists, fascists, and extremists. How much damage was done by Fauci and the CDC regarding misinforming the public about COVID-19 and who was really affected and the promotion of these lockdowns? Oh, I mean, uh, tens of trillions of dollars in economic damage uh, to the United States and, of course, to the world economy. And as I would argue, it was done deliberately. This was probably the most successful uh, weapon in uh, release in human history. Millions of people have died, tens of trillions of dollars in economic damage. And the Biden administration appears incapable of trying to call China to account for that. I, I was pleased. Uh, the other day, uh, we had President Trump down in Tampa giving a speech, and he mentioned as one of the articles that he would pursue in the future was setting up a commission to have accountability for China for the release of uh, the coronavirus on the world. Uh, we need leaders in the United States to be calling China to account, because if they're not called to account, I'm afraid that lurking in a test tube somewhere, perhaps in the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself, is another coronavirus, another virus of a different kind, that will be released at the appropriate time. And I ask myself, why wouldn't they release it? Uh, the last release was successful. It caused damage to their principal adversary, their principal enemy they regard us, and uh, there have been there have been no consequences, no reparations paid, uh, no damages demanded from China by the United States. Why wouldn't they do it again? Are there any ethical or moral constraints that would prevent the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, who've killed tens of millions of their own people, from doing this again to the world? I think not. In a recent interview on Fox, Dr. Deborah Burks, the former COVID response coordinator, she was asked what people who have not been vaccinated should be thinking when they see President Biden and others who have been vaccinated and boosted getting COVID. Well, if you're across the South um, and you're in the middle of this wave, what's going to save you right now is Paxlovid. I knew these vaccines were not going to protect against infection, and I think we overplayed the vaccines. We overplayed the vaccines. What do you make of that admission? Well, I'm, I make of that admission that, uh, that she and Anthony Fauci are not going to be uh, uh, on very good terms from now on because... Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, not only was obsessed with gain-of-function research, and we know how that turned out with the creation of the coronavirus in the lab, but he was also obsessed with using mRNA vaccines uh, to trick the body into making parts of viruses that would then uh, produce an immune response, hopefully uh, against a particular disease. Uh, he's been trying that now for 25 years. There's a, and, and he's never succeeded. And in my view, he didn't succeed in this time. I, I think that hmm. the, the, the... And it is very interesting to me, Raymond, that China does not allow the use of the mRNA vaccines. They are using a traditional attenuated vaccine. What do they know hmm. that we don't know?
What we do know, of yeah. course, is that Big Pharma has made $100 billion off guaranteed government contracts and have been indemnified from lawsuits. So if you suffer it's an remarkable. adverse effect, you can't seek damages from the company that produced the drug. Yeah, and they sat on top of the Novavax vaccine, which we paid for. The Trump administration right. gave them a billion dollars to, to, to come up with a vaccine. The FDA sat on it and didn't approve it for use until earlier this year. Uh, on Saturday, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global public health emergency, Steve. Dr. Tedros, the uh, director general, overruled a panel of advisors who could not come to a consensus. Now, According to the WHO, they only classify COVID-19 and polio this way as a public health emergency of international concern. Now monkeypox has been a concern for years in African countries, but in recent weeks the virus has spread worldwide to some 75 countries. There are about 16,000 cases. Nearly all those infections outside Africa have occurred among men who have sex with other men. What do you make of the WHO monkeypox declaration, Steve? And where is this leading? Dr. Dr. Tedros is is overriding his own um, his own advisory commission, which has probably between the the couple dozen advisors, a couple hundred years of experience uh, in pandemics and viruses. Uh, he's not even a medical doctor. Uh, and then, of course, his statement today was that that perhaps men who have sex with men ought to temporarily reconsider uh, their sexual practices. Um, look, that strikes me as uh, a rather an underreaction, given the fact that in response to the coronavirus, we were all subject to lockdown for weeks on end. Our churches were closed. Businesses were shuttered. Uh, pastors were arrested for trying to open their doors and minister to the people who came to them for help. And yet, what we hear now uh, is that um, people should perhaps reconsider uh, their sex life. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a statement that Father Paul Marx used to make. He said, no one ever died of sex. Perhaps it would be best if people spoke honestly and openly about the fact that the way to stop monkeypox is the way to stop having um, indulging your sexual appetites at the present time. What do you hope people get from your politically incorrect guide to pandemics. Why did you write this book now? I wrote the book because, first of all, China is the great breeding ground of pandemics, and that the Chinese Communist Party has now four times uh, released a pandemic on the world, tried to release a pandemic on the world, and they will do it again, uh, especially if there are no repercussions for the last release. Uh, secondly, people need to know that, that we're still living with the aftermath of the Spanish flu which killed 40 or 50 million people in 1918, 1919. It's known as the mother of all pandemics because we're still dealing with the variants every winter flu season, but we don't die in large numbers. So basic evolutionary biology tells you that the coronavirus is evolving into less lethal, less dangerous forms. So let's all calm down about this. Let's, you know, Fauci is going to talk about a wave this fall. Omicron should be pronounced I'm a cold. Protect yourself, take reasonable precautions, but uh, this is not a viral Armageddon. The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics by Stephen Mosier is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen.
On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thanks for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.